So the talk was also had that dimension to it that it also enabled just like not only will law enforcement look at you with harsher eyes, but society as a whole is going to judge you much faster and harsher because of your skin color. And especially for how, you know, I grew up in Lund in Sweden. I was one of only three kids uh, of color in my entire school for my first six years of school. So I'm hyper visible in my school environment. And that hyper visibility, my dad wanted to address and did early. And that was something that, you know, I didn't listen to everything my dad said, as, and especially as I became a teenager and then a young man. But as a six, seven year old, I did try and listen to him about that and really try to apply myself and keep a low profile. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, everybody, we're back. This moment, the transatlantic bridge between Harlem and Stockholm, me, Jason Diakite in Stockholm, and my brother, Marcus Samuelson in Harlem, New York. You know, summertime came to Sweden, and once that happens, it's like uh, nobody's thinking about the pandemic. Life is good. People just uh, are out in the parks, out in the beaches. It's a, it's a little scary in one sense because the, you know, the pandemic, the virus is still, is still going around. But uh, nobody's thinking about that now. Good weather, like you know, long summer days. What that means, you know, like you know, even I remember moving from Sweden to Switzerland, and you live in Central Europe, and you just have longer days with sun. And you, you know, but when you live in a cold climate and the summer hits, it's not just the, the fact that, you know, summer hits, it's also everybody's up. It changes the mood, it changes the spirit in a way that I think only people in the North can really understand, you know? People don't work here because it's, it's like, no, it's summer, you know, uh, it's light, it's warm, we got some sun. Uh, so it's impossible to get anything done here this time of year. Yeah. It's interesting also, like this year, it doesn't always happen, but it's a midsummer. It's a huge, huge celebration in Sweden. And uh, Juneteenth came this year. And 
not just black people on the same day on the same day so you know i haven't really through the years been a big midsummer celebrator but juneteenth that is normally just a black holiday that we as black people celebrate uh became a nationwide big phenomenon which is wonderful to see actually mm, i think people all around the world found out about juneteenth because that dignity and that joy of celebration became extra visible this year in uh, everybody's Instagram and social media feed. So I think, I think this year was probably the first time people in Sweden found out that there even was something called Juneteenth. And Juneteenth oh, wow. is, uh, Juneteenth celebrates the, uh, it marks the date that the enslaved population in Texas found out about the Emancipation Proclamation. So the date, June 19th, is when the enslaved population of Texas found out that they were free. And this is two years after the Emancipation Proclamation had come out. So just, you know, how news travels slow. And, you know, I can't even imagine, uh, but that makes it, and especially in this moment that we're in, extra important to celebrate that. So what did you see? What, what did you see? Were you in Marcus Garvey Park? Did you, where did you go? Yeah, where were you? Yeah. Well, I think to that point, right? We want the pandemic to be over right now, yesterday. We all want that. But you can also, when you put things in perspective, so Juneteenth is two and a half years after, uh, you know, so it really, you think about that, you put that into perspective, but, um, you know, we want things quickly. And, you know, the pandemic and Juneteenth, it's kind of like, it's been this incredible inspirational spring with Black Lives Matters and the protest. But now I would say the pandemic is back bigger than ever. So it's been, you kind of have this push and pull, right? And states like the Sun Belt, like Arizona, Texas, and, and Florida, it's going up and up and up. So so you, you constantly being pushed and pulled between this and, you know, it impacts everything. But uh, just specifically on Juneteenth, I thought it was uh, a really magical day. Like now it's a time that I talk to my son about Black Lives Matter. I, you know, I'm, I'm now enjoying the fact that we're going to, he's going to grow up with this holiday as his holiday, right? He's getting to that point now where he knows what a holiday is. His birthday's coming in July, Juneteenth is in June. Do you know what I mean? So, and, and we're talking about, he, he's now talking a lot about, you know, people and friends and colors and he starts to have questions, you know. Because mm. everybody's talking about it and he's, he's obviously listening and seeing what's going exactly. on. But I mean, up until, uh, well, still to this day, the only official holiday for African-Americans would be Martin Luther King Day. And I, if I don't, if I'm not, if I'm not misremembering, I think quite a few profiled Republicans were against making Martin Luther King Day a national holiday, you know? Yeah. A few? Of course. I mean, once again, Chuck D documented it, you know, uh, in his song, um, Arizona, because, you know, I mean, that's why I'm always like, Chuck, Chuck has done so much for modern history for me. Like I always check in on Chuck, Uncle Chuck, because it's right there. But, you know, and, 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 and uh, same thing, I think Juneteenth is only recognized in about 45 of the states, but you know, who cares? You know, it, it, 
it is important that it gets acknowledged everywhere, but people's going to celebrate. It's important that, um, you know, I, I listen to other movements, right? And then you think about other movements and you think about, you know, pride and all of that with LBTGQ's journey. And uh, I was just listening to an, uh, an activist from the gay community yesterday and he grew up with a fear. He grew up in the 70s. He grew up with the fear where um, first coming out was once he told his parents, they wanted to take him to the doctor and, and really check. So, of course, there was something wrong with him, right? Then on top of it, it was illegal in, in most states, right? So he really, from both his parents' side and his own level of doubts, thought he was doing something illegal. And, you know, as a teenager trying to figure all this out. And my point is, all marginalized people go through a level of doubt, society, their own family, and illegality. And being thrown into jails, like thousands and thousands of gay men in, 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 in not only, if we think about California and New York as progressive people, but thrown into jails all the way into 1976. Do you know what I mean? And these are in progressive places. Yeah. So you're like, you're ostracized. First you're marginalized. Yes. Then you, may, you take the risk of being ostracized, mm-hmm. a re- very real risk from your own community, even mm-hmm. from your own family. Um, I can't imagine the struggle and, and courage that takes to just to be who you are. Yeah, and it's always about, people always say about, oh, well, you should follow the laws. I mean, the laws are really... Uh, most laws will change, you know what I mean? Unless it's like the worst of the spectrum. Well, listen, if, 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 if Obama's parents had followed the laws, you know, when he was born, it was still illegal in 17 out of 49 states yes. for a, a, a black person and a white person to get married, that i.e. have kids. So Obama was, was in theory born a crime, just like, you know, Trevor Noah was born a crime in South Africa. So was Obama here. So if people through the arc of history had are always mm. abided by the laws, uh, even when the laws were wrong, we'd never have progress. MLK pushed that, you know, and he pushed it hard and, and like drops on stone managed to tear down some of those laws. I think it's extremely important to uh, acknowledge and go back and read I, I like to look at other marginalized journeys and what can you learn from that, right? Because obviously this journey is very much documented, just like Malcolm said, right? <laughs> um, it will be televised, right? So, so the revolution will be televised, but, but it's more on social media now. But it's also encouraging to, to draw from, from other places. I think about when people are asking, have Black Lives Matters and have George Floyd made a difference. And it's an enormous amount of difference that it's made already. There is a Brianna Law, Brianna Taylor Law written in, in Kentucky right now. So so they're in the middle of the due process of all of those different things now, right? But I'm just saying on, on, on both on a local level and on a nationwide level, it is happening. And once it happens in America, you know, other places will follow. So there's a lot of different election coming up, right? So on local levels, there's massive changes, both in terms of, you're thinking about law enforcement, police, 
the bills that are, that are that are written right now, they would have never been written. Just as simple as the chokeholds, right? That I don't even see it as a as a victory. It shouldn't be in there in the first place, but it is a victory from where you're coming from. Now you hear major police union leaders uh, acknowledging and understanding that there has to be reform. So the Breonna Taylors of the, the uh, I, I just hate the fact that it gets to the George Floyds and the Breonna Taylors and 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 the list goes on and on and on. But there is massive change happenings, at least. Mm-hmm. And big up to big up to Jamal Bowman, who was uh, just elected in the primary, uh, what ten days ago? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, by a p- pretty sweet margin, as I uh, understand. So that's that's what progress looks like. It's it's slow and steady, and the, and as we've always said, you know, change is hard. But if you don't have people willing to take to the streets to make the voice of the people heard and maybe break a law or two or three or five until the laws are rewritten in a more humane and fair and equal way, then that progress wouldn't happen. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, if you think about Kentucky, where you have Mitch McConnell, has been there forever since the 80s, probably. Uh, There is a young gentleman right now with Charles Booker that actually uh, is going to win uh, most, most likely will win the Democratic seat, Democrat seat there and can go up against Mitch McConnell. And normally in Kentucky, everyone says, you know, he's been there so so long. So everyone always take the Democrats have always taken the uh, side of, oh, let's put almost someone in the middle or independent to go up against Mitch McConnell. It never works. Charles Booker is like, no, I'm down with Bernie Sanders and we need to change. Mm. Well, that's what worries me about the upcoming election. Of course, we'll talk about that as that, yeah. you know, as that unfolds more. But uh, I'm not certain that Joe Biden is the is the I'm, I'm definitely certain that he's not the most progressive and, and that he can really represent what uh, Democrats or I should say all non-Republican voters yeah. uh, look like and feel like today. So that worries me a bit. But we'll get into that as as that election comes closer. Yeah. Let's get closer. But follow Charles Booker because it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting journey he's on, right? First of all, he he was friends with the family of Brianna Taylor. So he knew on first hand, right? And he's been around for a while, right? So he he knew and he spoke on that, right? And then also uh, the fact that he he, his coalition, and you're not in New York, you're not in, Col- in, in, in California, you're in Kentucky. He's like, the coalition's going to come from two places. It's going to come from the young, woke, white voters, right? There's a whole collection of white, young, and I always call them Obama's kids. And they're the one, they're all over the country. And that's why uh, Donald Trump and, and Mitch McConnell and everybody's so scared. Because first of all, if you're 20-something, and you're young, white, and progressive. You grew up with your first lady was black. You grew up with a black president. This is nothing strange for you, right? So that young, woke person in Kentucky, if that person is in Kentucky, they're all over the United States. Once Obama actually got into the Oval Office, he showed the world that it was possible. That means that it not only can, but it will happen again. You know, a, a woman of color or a man of color, or a person of color will sit in that office again. I, I wanted to ask you something, uh, Marcus, because I was talking to a good friend of mine the other day 
And he said uh, that his son, who's 10 years old, had come home after having hung out in the park. And he came home and told his dad, my friend, he's like, yeah, I met, I met your friend in the park today. And he's like, which friend? Oh, you know, uh, he's, he's kind of uh, short, kind of round. And, and he's like, what, but who, you know, what, what, what else? Like, I, I don't know who you mean. And he kept describing the friend uh, and describing the friend and describing the friend. And, and he couldn't understand which one of his friends his son was describing. And finally he said, yeah, I think, it's, uh, I think his name is like... Uh, uh, Frank or Franco or something. And he's like, ah, Franco. Well, why did you say that it was my, you know, Franco who's black? Why didn't you describe him as, as black? And he was like, and his son was like, ah, I didn't, it, it didn't occur to me that that was, you know, uh, that, that was a descriptive, you know, kind of fact about this guy. And so, so my friend is telling me this and he's like, wow, it's really incredible that my son who's 10 years old sees somebody and he, he, for a long time when describing the person, doesn't even mention the color of his skin. And of course, when my friend said that, I was like, yeah, that, that's great. You know? But at the same time, it, it worries me a little bit about an attitude that's very prevalent in Sweden right now, uh, or has been for a long time, but that's really resurfacing in, as, a, as a reaction to what's going on in the States and the protests is that, oh, well, in Sweden, we're colorblind. We don't see color. And if we don't see color, we don't acknowledge that there is white or that there is black, then magically racism will be gone, right? And so I just wanted to complicate this both with you, but I, I said to my friend, I'm like, well, it is important for not only children, but for adults to have that, especially if you're a marginalized group, if you're a minority, if you're black, if you're a person of color, if you're a part of the LGBT community, to actually be able to identify and say, well, I am black, or I am gay, or I am uh, a Roma person, or whatever community or culture you identify as. Um, and I think Mostly in Sweden, it's been white journalists. I heard, I heard somebody on, uh, I heard a white journalist named uh, uh, Nina Salomon yesterday on P1, which is the Swedish BBC's prime channel, Sveriges uh, Radio, talk about that anti-racism talking about whiteness and blackness was uh, counterproductive. And that as long as the anti-racist movement talks about white and black, then we can never move into this kind of utopian uh, uh, post-racial colorblindness. No, but I think like you have to, first of all, I think it's a very, very important point that you brought up. And I think it's, it's the, the challenge you have with racism is that if you say and explain why somebody is, has an ism, the other person shuts off, right? And I'm not that, I'm not in the act as you so nicely and importantly described it. But there are nuances in this, just as much as everything we do in our lives today, this is why life is beautiful, is it's highly layered and it's very complex. And the subtle differences are very, very important. And you can evolve, right? Like, it's funny how iPhone comes out with a new phone every year or every six months, and it's an improved version of that. 
Well, so it is also as us as human, be- human beings, right? I think, for example, like my white parents would have signed on to the idea that they were colorblind before they adopted us. And, and it's a generational and it, it comes from a place. But then once they grew up with us, my mom, raised, once they raised us, my mom learned on this journey, right? So, for example, when she did my sister's hairs, it was very, very different than doing her hairs, right? So she learned in the journey that, yes, she's raising two girls, but there was other uh, other ways of, of doing her hair than her hair, right? Doing the hair than her hair. That's a very, okay, you can deal with that in the house. But it also had a huge implication because my sister didn't want to go to school with her hair a certain way, right? Uh, when... And I'm, that's kind of maybe like the smallest way of describing it. So I think it's super important. Like a friend of mine um, just said the other day, no, like maybe this is about six months ago, he said, uh, well, did you call the cops? I said, absolutely not. Well, why didn't you, something happen outside? And I said, absolutely not. My, my last intention is to call the cops. I want to solve, I want to do everything I possibly can first and solve it. All right. I, I would have just called the cops and I said, Again, when I see a young brother, black brother, I know what can happen to him. And therefore, I don't call the cops. And so, so this idea, like, just like you are aware when you go into something in any other community, right? Like, you, it's insensitive to, I come from a fishing village, you know, it's insensitive to talk how great meat is in a fishing village because the livelihood of the fisherman is fish, right? You honor the place you are. So like you got to be sensitive and aware in the community and culture. And I think the, the thing that you just said there, Jason, that is not a small thing. I actually think that most good people with a good heart thinks about that, but they've never been around people that want to evolve them, right? And it's very much where how people, uh, I talk about this a lot, but how, how my father was homophobic and my mother evolved much quicker. And blackness, some people can say it's generational too because different, but then people evolve. The reason why my mom evolved quicker was because she was open to the idea and my father was close to the idea. So I think it's super important to acknowledge exactly what you said. Saying that you're colorblind cannot just, it's not okay 2020 to say that. You actually need to evolve from that. It's not enough in any way. I think a lot of people, a lot of white people or people who haven't experienced racism and who identify as non-racist people or people who haven't overtly ever discriminated or been racist towards anyone think with good intent that them seeing people of different colors as equal is enough. And by showing that example that their children also will see people, no matter what color uh, skin they have or or, uh, sexual orientation or how their bodies function, will just automatically see them as equal. That's on one level when it comes to the overt uh, oppression, discrimination, and prejudice directed at minorities and marginalized groups and, and people of color. But it's still being blind to how the structures work, you know, 
the structures of racism and and that well your your white son's black friends they're not growing up in the same you know they're not growing up with the same um attitude or or trust in society like for example the the white child will be taught maybe from an early age that if you get into trouble call the cops you know if it's bad trouble try to get the attention of an an officer of the law and they'll come and fix it whereas i'm pretty sure that most uh people of color and 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 african americans especially are telling their ch- children just like just like you were saying the other day if if you get into trouble maybe the last thing you want to do is call the cops or you really have to be aware what can happen if the cops show up that all of a sudden that could totally you know the dynamics could switch and you may be in danger mortal danger even and that same thing is going through your mind when you see somebody outside your house in trouble is that no let me not call the cops because i don't want to expose this person to what could be lethal danger or just danger of being maltreated is bad enough or beaten or you but know. i think also like we we are so open to learning people are such a thirst of learning when it comes to technology when it comes to so many different things right we always want to evolve you know you can take your favorite sport and you you know like i love soccer i love football and the different systems you can play and you have to learn and evolve right it's just the same thing here mm-hmm. and you know I, i'm also i encourage everybody to listen to Nicole Hannah Jones, like listen to, take a good listen to 1619 or, or uh, there's uh-huh, a great uh-huh. podcast called Still Processing. You know what I mean? Like, or read something from Wes Moore. For- read Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, you know. Uh, but I was raised by uh, a white mother and an African-American dad. And my dad, as, long, as far back as I can remember, he was, he was consistently raising me with a black identity sure. which you know and telling me about the dignity telling me about the struggle telling me about the obstacles and the dangers i remember him telling me to be careful around police i remember him telling me to make sure to avoid contact with the police he never told me at any point that i should you know call the police if i get into trouble or anything like that his main his main recipe for survival was just just make sure the police never want to talk to you and don't you know if you see if your friends are involved in something and the police show up walk the other way but if you get stopped by the police do everything they say don't say anything to them and call me get your phone call call me and I'll help you mm-hmm. and it's only one goal and it's to come home right it's just one goal mm-hmm. the only mm-hmm. win here is to come home which leads me to, you know, speaking to kids about racism. When do you speak to your younger ones or your siblings or your cousins or your nieces and nephews? When do you speak to, to your family, your kids about racism? So a friend of the show is Victoria Valim in Stockholm. And Victoria is going to talk to us and help us how she talks to her kids about racism. When is the right time? So listen to this. Check it out. I have two children, they are going to be 14 and 15. I realized that I don't recall a specific moment. I think the conversation was always present, mostly because of me. I wanted to prepare them. I mean, we do live in Sweden, so we are highly outnumbered. And they're always pretty much 
they knew they always knew they were a minority, not so much because of our context. Our context is definitely multicultural, but because of my close family being white, since I'm adopted from Ethiopia. And so there's so many layers when you also need to combine racism with adoption. There was, however, a larger discussion when they were about eight and nine, and I was a part of a documentary uh, that was called The Race Card. It was a documentary about growing up being black in Sweden that got a lot of media attention, and it also became uh, educational materials in schools all over Sweden. So the kids actually saw it with me and got really upset from hearing the stories that me and the other uh, participants had gone through. So basically, it gave us a good foundation for a really good conversation about norms, standards, and values. But since they became teens, the discussion of race, racism, but mostly, you know, in the context, again, of norms and role models and in that sense, lack of opportunities for people of color in Sweden, uh, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's daily, but at least weekly. Uh, it's a weekly discussion in our house. And I, I don't know if it's good or bad, but I, I, I also tend to push them to talk about it. And because in the end, I, I think our toolbox doesn't have all the instruments for this society. So I actually have to, it's up to me to teach them to be a bit careful with people. Um, so it's, it's something that we talk a lot about. But again, I mean, they haven't been exposed uh, to racism as much as I did growing up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, but uh, they do say that they, a lot of the time, seems like they have to be the advocate or educate people that it's not okay to say the N-word, that, you know, if someone says to them, oh, I don't see colors, you could might as well be white to me. They're quickly there to do some education. <laughs> so they're, they're very, very engaged in the question. That's, I can just agree with, uh, with Victoria, and I really think she's, you know, 100% on point. Just talk a lot about it and, and bring it up, you know, talk about that there are different, uh, there are different groups, there are different cultures, there are different races, there are different sexual orientations, there are people who, people's, people whose bodies function differently, and their the way they're met in society is different from it from what it might be for you and to give them that you know whether or not whether your kids are black or white or or whatever to just plant and and kind of cultivate that awareness from a young young age you know my daughter's two zion is mm-hmm. turning four in a month i mean now's really the time for us to start you know well at, at like at my daughter's age, she's two. I think exposing her to uh, having play dates with kids of uh, who look differently, who come from different cultures, just giving her that diversity. Of course, in Sweden, which is it, it is a diverse society, but it's not like New York, the most diverse you know city in the world. So in Sweden, you have to you have to uh, uh, be a little more con- take a little more conscious steps yeah. to expose her to diversity. Um, Whereas for Zion, he's going to get it a little more um, naturally and organically just as soon as he steps out of the door in his building. Yeah, but I think, you know, one of the things that I love about our talks is that we know that the diaspora around us looks very different. You can 
be a, a person of color. You can be a listener in Germany where you don't have this dialogue and maybe you need it, right? You're searching for that, right? Or you can be in a smaller city in Sweden and you, you're, you're raising a kid or a child or you're thinking about adopting, you're thinking about, you know, whatever it might be and you want the most information. And, you know, that's why America for me is such a complex layered and it's beautiful in all its, its, its faults because you do have lynching, lynching, modern lynching is going way up. You have the man from the biggest pulpit with the biggest microphone in the world retweeting, retweeting white power. Right. But at the same time, do you also have massive structural change in laws? Right. The fact that Kentucky is moving, the fact that uh, Mississippi is is taking banning, taking the Confederate flag, flag off their flag is, yeah. is happening. Right. The fact that these major, major things that you have something like Nicole Hannah Jones winning the Pulitzer Prize, the fact that. So there are these dual conversations at the same time. And I know that's, for me, where it has to happen in places like Sweden, like Germany, where the dialogue is there. I think as a parent, just, uh, I think one of the most important things, not just as a parent, but just as a person, is that we all have to face our own biases. Yes. You know, whether or not you're a person of color or you're white, we're all somewhere on the privilege ladder. We're, we're more privileged than, than someone else. And we also are carriers, carriers of our own biases. And being willing to face and, and kind of uh, recognize and identify, admit, that admit to ourselves, to our family, to our friends, to our you know, colleagues that we carry these biases or that there are discriminatory or racist practices or in any way like oppressive behavior going on in our, in our communities and social groups, I think is really important because, you know, one thing that I'm, that I'm really realizing and of course becoming a parent myself, uh, I've been reflecting on is the fact that I'll be telling, and I, I tell my daughter a lot of things like, don't do, go too close to, uh, you know, hold on to the banister when you're going downstairs or um, don't put the knife in your mouth or don't, you know, don't run holding a glass. And I'm, I'm telling her all types of things to to make sure that she's going to be all right and that she learns what's dangerous and what's not. But and she, you know, she doesn't always listen to me. A lot of times she'll uh, uh, she'll go the uh, uh, revolutionary route. But even more than what I'm telling her to do, she's observing what she sees me and her mom doing. Yeah. Um, so that's why I think like as a parent, facing your own bias, being able to admit it and even talk to your children about it, that, mm. you know, whatever social group you, you, you belong to or wherever, whoever you are, you're somewhere in a privilege, in, in a privilege uh, hierarchy. And, uh, to be able to recognize that and talk about it, I think is really important. And another thing, Marcus, that I've been thinking about that I'm really, uh, that I think is really complicated is the fact that, you know, for so many years now, the, the, the revolution has been televised, the, the, the oppression and murder of black people has been on film, mm -hmm. right? So this is one of the major differences on how 
racism in its most lethal form is being captured and then broadcast and spread and gone viral all across the world. Um, I don't know if I want to show my daughter, like say, you know, she's two now, so obviously she wouldn't quite grasp what's going on if I showed her the film of the murder of George Floyd, but say a four-year-old like Zion or a seven-year-old like my, uh, like some of my friends' kids are, or even a 10 or 12-year-old, they would understand. Now, how do you feel about, how do you feel about that? Do you, do you, I mean, because it's obviously exposing them to how deadly and how, how brutal racism can be, and that is in itself going to cause trauma. First of all, I think it's a great conversation and that means that you you're thinking about it and we're really like what when and if right so it's it's definitely not if you're going to have the conversation it's when do you bring it up so it's appropriate right so because you also have to think about the this spring george floyd brianna all of this this horrible things that happened it will be Max's and Zion's were in the second act of the civil rights movement, right? It will be documented the way we grew up and in the 80s and 90s when videos of everything that happened in the 60s were into, it essentially moved into pop culture. Well, guess what? This is it's going to happen. So by the time that they're 10 and start looking and Googling and doing the other stuff, this stuff's going to come up. But I think it's super important to how are you it's being brought up, right? It's such a natural part of parenting that you want to shelter your kids. But I do understand that sheltering can never mm-hmm. become silence. Sure, sure, like, sure. What I do want to do with my daughter is bring her to the demonstrations, tell her the stories of the freedom fighters and the revolutionaries, expose her to the Gil Scott Herons, the Nina Simones, the Zora Neale Hurstons, the ta Coates of the world, the, the Tamika Mallory's mm-hmm. and Kimberly Jones's and expose her to that and never in mm-hmm. and never be silent about it and and maybe tell her the story but it's just this little parental fear i guess that i have of would i actually show her the film of george floyd being killed now that's actually a question i'd like to put to our listeners please uh uh you know hit us up in the comments when you listen yeah. to this because I really need your your insight and your guidance yeah. on that because I don't know what what's the right what the right way to go is on that one. No, and I think that's absolutely fair to have like doubt, and that's really we're parents. We're living these moments, and we're people, and it's 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 a very very difficult. It's a thin line, and when to do it, and how to have the conversation, and but it's also important. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You know, uh, June 25th is a very interesting date. I don't know why there was just so much in that date, but it, for me... It was the date when Tamir Rice would have been 18, right? So Tamir Rice would have been 18. It, it is like I, I thought about that. It's also my friend um, Anthony Bourdain's uh, birthday. You know, he died a couple of years ago, obviously contributed massively to the world of food, but also people and curiosity. Um, it's also the day when Michael Jackson died in 2009. And this idea with Tamir Rice, like couldn't even see his 18 years birthday, right? So it is, if you want proof that raising kids is different for different, has different stakes for parents. I think the Tamir Rice one is, is one that cuts the deepest because you're dealing with a boy. You know, you're dealing with a boy mm. and all the isms. He was only 12. That, mm. Yeah, all, all the isms in the world were all in there, right? They decide, you know, he was playing with a water gun. With a toy gun. When, when implicit bias and when structural racism and stereotypical conditioning and racist conditioning is so omnipresent for the police officer that when he arrives at a playground and sees a 12-year-old boy playing with a toy gun, he doesn't even ask questions. He kills him immediately because to him, that boy could be a threat. And it was so, it was so uh, flabbergasting and just so tragic to hear that then some of the media conversation after Tamir's murder was that, well, he looked a lot older than he was, as that would justify, you know, just this very old stereotype of a black man being dangerous. But here you have a grown man with, with an actual gun and the law on his side, and you have a boy with a toy, and that re the result becomes murder, because that's how deep that conditioning is. That's how deep biases run, and these structures that we're talking about. So to me, in the light of that, 
you as a parent raising a child, especially a white child in this world, it's not enough to, to say, well, we are good and equal and non-racist people. You have to tell your children about what other groups in society are going through, what the world looks like, what these structures of oppression actually do and have done. So don't bring me, don't bring me colorblindness now. We can talk about colorblindness later, but just right now, we can't really start there. That's not our starting point because that's not where the world is right now. That's not how these structures operate. And, and I think uh, with, I was thinking a lot about Tamir also because Victoria's children is exactly the same age as um, Tamir was when he, when he got murdered. So um, Victoria's, um, you know, she's going to share with us how to talk about racism uh, with your children, with your child, with your loved one. So um, check it out. This is Victoria talking to us. Well, I think, I mean, this doll test. I mean, I think they did it the first time. They did it in the 60s in the United States, and then they did it again not too long ago in Denmark. And I think that's a really good, really good uh, foundation for a good uh, discussion, uh, regardless of ethnicity, uh, discussion of norms and standards and values, and why, why uh, that the standards in our society has become what they have become. I, I think it's a really good an educational clip. I mean, you can get it from YouTube. And I think it's even when they're young, so my kids were eight and nine, I mean, you could probably do it already when they're five or six uh, because it's so descriptive. And I, I would start there. That would be my concrete tip. And another tip would be talk about it. Talk about it a lot. Do not not talk about it. That's the worst thing you can do, especially if you have white kids. Talk, talk to them about it. Um, because also that when I've been exposed to racism, most of the time, it's actually from children that, are, uh, that, have, that have questions that are like, why, mom, why does she look like that? And I think if the parents will say, well, it's because she's from Africa probably, and you know, give an explanation rather than be like, oh, shh, quiet, quiet, quiet. Because if you say, like, quiet, of course the kid's going to go up and say, thinking that it's something wrong with it, it's a disease or something. And so when I, when I have the time, I actually try to help the parents to explain it. It never, really, never happened to me that a parent uh, actually have a good explanation for the kids. And they need to have that. I totally agree with her. I think... The doll test is one of the most uh, striking things that you can look at to really uh, uncover how early uh, implicit bias and racist, con- you know, racial conditioning happens in a human being. And it was actually um, two African American psychologists in the '40s, Kenneth B. Clark and his wife Mamie Clark that started doing these doll tests already in the 40s. But if you go onto YouTube and you Google doll test, you'll find some good films where the doll test was done in Denmark and in other countries in the 60s, I think some in the 80s and 90s. So this is a, a, a psychological a test that, that is done on very young children where they get to choose between a black and a white doll. And 
an overwhelming majority of the, ch- the children choose the white doll, but they can't really explain why. No, mm-hmm. she's just that this the white doll is just more beautiful or I don't know what it is. I just like this one better. And this is both for uh, black kids and white kids. So, you know, when that's the when that's the playing field, you know, when those structures are so uh, are they they're seeping in through the air of mm. children just at the outset of them building their own identities as people. Yeah, that's when you realize what obstacles we have to overcome before we truly can go into a post-racial phase. So again, colorblindness is not the discussion we should be having today. Today, we have to explain the landscape. We have to explain the, the, uh, the, the structure and what it looks like and what it does. So Victoria is 100% onto it. Have the conversation with your children about race, talk about suppression, talk about what the situation for white people is, but what the situation for all persons of color, all marginalized groups, what it's like for them. Invite them into your home. If you're a parent of white children, make sure that your children are exposed to a a diversity of, of, uh, of people and role models and ways of being and ways of living. I think that's you know, the living by example as a parent is going to have that extra weight, you know, be actually the backbone of, of your children when they grow up. No, but, but for me, for me, I think I think it's a very important journey that we do and it's uncomfortable. But I do think it's also about inspiring aspirations, for example. You know, that's why I think it's important that uh, what's happening with the Confederate flag. That's why I think it's important that monuments are coming down. That's why it's important to change where names of where the U.S. military trains that they're linked to, you know, uh, slave owners and, and, and all of this disgusting stuff that, you know, that was really, and, you know, people like Andrew Jackson, they're really, you know, people that were terrorists against our own country. Do you know what I mean? And, and terrorized people in, 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 in this country. So I just think it's extremely, extremely important to have this conversation. You know, I went to, um, for the research of my book, The Rise, you know, I went to plantation in, in Virginia and just being a black person standing on the ground, you shake, you know. You know, I was, as a kid, you know, my, my parents took us to Auschwitz and I was maybe just 13 years old and I would never forget it. I would just never forget it. Like it's an unbelievable sight. I felt as an adult that, but even more because, you know, like, and the way the guide and the person that now owned the, the property, the way she described it and the other people on the tour that were mostly white and the, there's two other black people on the tour, the way we took this in, like, oh, on weekends we have weddings here. And she legit, she's like, and here is where the staff slept. And I'm like, what do you mean staff? These were enslaved people. There was no staff. No one came here to work in terms of voluntarily work. And the way that, and 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 this is a legit, and of, she was talking about, oh, we only have six acres now. And, you know, this used to be like 100 acres. So it's quite small right now. And, and it's like, this is, ha- yeah. And, and it, it's, it's important that, this has to just be like resets, 
Yeah, we have to take an honest look at our history. We have to admit as a collective, exactly. you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, as I write in my book, uh, I went to Whitney Plantation in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And Whitney, Whitney is right next to Laura Plantation and Oak Alley and a couple of other mm-hmm. plantations that are, uh, that are there. And at that point, when I visited 2015, Whitney was the only plantation in the entire country who told, who gave their guided tours from the perspective of the enslaved uh, workers. Mm-hmm. The only one. Yeah. In 2015. Yeah. And then, you know, going to Birmingham also in 2015 or to Montgomery, Alabama, and seeing the, the plaques and the commemorative uh, history being told mm-hmm. uh, openly and publicly, you know, I saw that these plaques were erected in 2013, 2014. Yeah. So, there is still a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And that's why I think uh, what Victoria is onto and what we've been talking about today, talking to your kids about race is not something dangerous. It's not something to shy away from. Uh, quite the opposite. It's really, really important to, to explain the landscape and expose them you know, uh, in a good way to what the world looks like so that they then have the tools to be able to go on and, and actually change it. The Zions and the Maxims and, and Victoria's kids and all the kids mm-hmm. uh, who are getting this uh, consciousness from, you know, from an early age. Yeah, no, absolutely. So with that, Mr. Jason Diakite, uh, yes, sir. I hope yes, sir. you go out in that Swedish sun, soak it all in, enjoy it. I sure will, brother. And uh, yeah. uh, I see you on the rebound. All right. Peace out. Mm -hmm. All right. As always. This is This Moment. Thank you for listening, everyone. Marcus, be good. Stay safe and talk to you soon. Peace. This Moment is produced by Mohammed El Abed. It's an Acast recording and can be heard on all platforms. So stay tuned. More depth coming your way soon. you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.